If you have your Bible, can you turn to Luke chapter 1, please? Luke chapter 1, we're going to continue our series through the Gospel of Luke. We just got started last week. And this week we're going to be looking at the, the birth of the forerunner to Jesus, which was John the Baptist. And I know it's probably easy today to be distracted because apparently there's something, some game happening later on today. So I need to pray extra hard for you all that you could pay attention to me. The Lord's word will have its effect. Let's pray and ask God's help. Father, you are gracious, you are good, and your word is is our food. We thank you for the gospel. It is our life. We thank you for Jesus, whom you gave to us. Blessed be your name forever, for you have loved us and given us your only begotten Son. And so doing this, you've done some amazing things. You keep your word and you're faithful, you're good. And yet you come to us, weak, beggarly, vile, sinful, selfish creatures. And you endure with us, patiently dealing with us, forming us into the image of your Son by your Spirit. And so we ask this morning that you would truly reveal to us your goodness, your grace, and your ways, so that we might know you and trust you more. For we ask this in Christ. Amen. The forerunner of Jesus, John the Baptist. We're looking at verses 8 and following this morning to verse 25. And here we see a man who God foretold would come. He promised that this man would come hundreds and hundreds of years prior, that there would be someone who'd come before this great and awesome day of the Lord. He is the one who would prepare the way for God to show up amongst his people. And as we look at these events, as we look at the life of John and what his anticipated birth, we're going to see some things about God, about ourselves, and about our world that should cause us, that hopefully should cause us this morning to trust God more and ourselves less. And that's primarily what Scripture does in our lives, that hopefully it teaches us to help us to understand who is our God, what is He like? What are we like? What's this world like? So that we might repent of all of our sinfulness, our goofiness, our our strange thinking and our idols, and we might turn to the living God and find life in Him. One of the things that we'll notice here at the very beginning, verses 8 through 17, is that God is faithful to His Word even in the details. Look at verse 8. Now, while he is serving as priest, now this is Zechariah, before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, 
Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayers have been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice in it at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and to the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. God is faithful to his word in the details, and what we find here are details, particular details. Zechariah is on duty because his shift has come up. It says in verse 8, Now he's serving as priest when his division was on duty, it says. And these shifts would last for one week. He'd have a one-week duty where he'd be in the temple the whole time, and then he would go home after this week of duty. Now even though this, this shift might seem like just a random shift, it's not. What's happening here and the shift that he so finds himself on is ordained by God, orchestrated by God. It says in verse 9 this, how this all happened. It happens, his, his shift in his duty happens, verse 9, according to the custom of the priesthood. He was chosen by lot. The casting of the lot, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Now this is significant. And the reason for that is because according to the Mishnah, the Mishnah is this book of customs of the priests and how they're to conduct themselves in the temple. And according to this book, someone can only do this particular duty going into the temple and burn incense once in their lifetime. So who, and they cast lots out of all these priests, and not all the priests can. So if the lot falls to you, you get this privilege. And you, once in your lifetime, can go in there and burn these incense. It was an amazing privilege. And how it worked is this, like this. There were three priests who would go in. One priest would take the old ashes away from the altar of incense and put them in their golden censer and depart. Another priest would have, in his golden censer, he would have coals from the altar outside the altar of sacrifice. He would take coals from there, he would place them on the altar of incense, and then he would leave. And the third guy, which was Zechariah, he would have his golden censer full of incense, and he would take incense, and he would sprinkle them on the hot coals. And as the smoke would rise up before the, the entrance to the most holy place, which he couldn't go inside of, only the high priest could go in once a year, this was to signify the sweet-smelling aroma of the prayers of the saints lifted up. And as that smoke would ascend, Zechariah would begin his prayer. And so this is what happens. Zechariah is start beginning his prayer, and his particular prayer that he says is a common prayer. It was also found in the Mishnah as well. It, it was a prayer for the people of Israel. It was a, he was there to pray on behalf of Israel. And one of the particular components of this prayer is that God would bring Messiah. Messiah would come to save his people, deliver his people. But you also got to think, given what's said here, that Zechariah threw in something else. 
He probably said something like, Father, and if there's any way that I could have a child, please, Lord, it would be such a tremendous blessing. And why do I say that? Why do I say he probably threw in a personal prayer request at that time? Well, because of what it says. Listen how Gabriel answers him after this prayer in verse 13. But the angel says to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And what does he say? For your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and she'll call his name John. Now your prayer has been heard, and this is what he says is going to happen. You're going to actually have a son. And so... Two things are happening here. Both the prayer that he's praying as the priest for Israel is being fulfilled here and now in his presence, and also probably that personal prayer that he throws in, please, O God, grant us a child, is being answered as well. Now, something we have to understand here. Could you imagine for a moment? Can you imagine for a moment that... This is your only time in the temple inside the holy place and will be the only time in your life. Here's something else to understand, just so you get a feel of a sense of the presence of what this must have been like. You go into a place that has gold all on the walls and ceilings, pure gold. The ceilings are 60 feet high. So just because by its presence, and I don't know if you've ever seen Herod's temple, if you've looked at images, it's, it's this beautiful temple. And entering into it, that alone would have been astounding. It's got mystique about it. You never go in there. So it creates a sense of intrigue, doesn't it? What's in there? Not only that, you go in there and, you, and you, very few times a year, there's, a, there's a, also a sense of glory. There's a sense of power. There's a sense that, it, you know, this mystery has created this drama almost. And then, On top of that, guess what? This is where God dwells. So, this is a big moment. you got to understand that Zechariah has probably got chills running down his spine to start with. But then something happens. Something happens. Someone shows up. While he's there praying... There appeared to him, verse 11, an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. Could you imagine? You're already kind of filled with emotion, and somebody shows up that shouldn't be there. Somebody shows up out of nowhere. Not only shows up, it's the angel Gabriel shows up. And it, this is what it says. And he appeared to him as an angel standing on the right side of the altar. And Zechariah, what was his response? Verse 12, was troubled when he saw him. And fear fell upon him. Well, I guess. And I don't know exactly what Gabriel looks like. But according to Daniel 8, he has the appearance of a man. And, and you know, I don't, if you ever see angel pictures, most of the time we see little little babies with wings and they're fat, you know, and they fly around. That's typically what they project as angels. But if you read about angels in the Bible, almost every single time one is seen, fear instantly fills the people and they're tempted to worship them. Now, I don't know, when I looked at those little 
cherubs they have in the Christian bookstore. I'm not filled with fear and want to worship them. You know, they're kind of, they're cute kind of creatures. So Gabriel's an impressive man. Now, we also have in Bibles, there's, there's seraphim, there's cherubim, there's different kinds. But the cherubim are often the creatures, the ones who are winged and have the blazing swords. They're guardians of God's temple. And these ones, you know, the ones, the four-headed ones, the ones with the head of the man, the, the eagle, the ox, and the lion. And then you have the seraphim that seem to be, have a, a facial appearance anyways of a man. But this particular angels and Gabriel, whenever he shows up, he's an impressive man. Now, I'm sure he's radiant with glory. But this was something that would have rocked Zechariah's world. He shows up and he's about to announce something to him. And all these things that happen in, in Gabriel's, I'm sorry, in this particular revelation of, of, of the preparation of John, all the details from his assignment to the casting of the lot to going there, everything that happens and everything that is said, everything that is said is very specific in its details and God is ordaining and orchestrating, faithfully fulfilling his word. Notice what what Gabriel says. Gabriel says to him that this is what's going to happen. You're going to have this son, a man who rejoice at his birth. And it says in verse 15, for he'll be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink. Now, why is that? This is, this is a direct tie from his birth that he is a Nazarite. He's fulfilling a Nazarite vow, which means somebody who's dedicated to the Lord. There's only two others who are dedicated to the Lord at their births. Samson and Samuel. They were Nazarites from birth. And here is John the Baptist, a Nazarite from birth, separated. God has him separated, and he does so for a special purpose as unto the Lord. Fact that he's great. Why will he be great? Well, first of all, because of his duty. Second of all, I think the only way to be great in God's sight at all is because of humility. He'll be a humble man because there's nothing, nothing impresses God. No ability, nothing anybody does is impressive to God. It's God given to him. And so the only thing that impresses God at all, the only reason why he's great, God says that he will be great in his sight, is because he will be a humble man, humble before the Lord. And all of that, he goes on to talk about what he will do. He says that he will be filled with this Holy Spirit. I think this is also connected to his anointing, his being set apart, a Nazarite. The prophets and the kings in the Old Testament, when they're set apart for their office and they discharge their office, they were anointed, anointed with the Holy Spirit, filled for the, to fulfill their office. There's much you could say about that in many implications. But he goes on to say, And he will turn many of the children of Israel, in verse 16, to the Lord their God. And he will go before him, who's him? Jesus, in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready the way prepared for the Lord. Do you know what he's saying there? He basically, he doesn't give scripture and verse. He doesn't say, well, if you were to turn to Malachi chapter 3 and Malachi chapter 4, you would notice that I'm quoting. Zechariah is a pretty astute guy. He's a priest. He studies the law. They know everything about the coming Messiah. And he probably knows even in his own head he's quoting Malachi, even though it's not said. It's exactly what he's saying. Malachi 3.1, which was read this morning, says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Malachi 4, 5, and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet 
before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land, the land with a decree of utter destruction. So what, is he, what did the angel say here? One's coming, the forerunner's coming. He quotes Malachi, that God's word is being fulfilled. But you know what also is interesting? Malachi 4, 5, and 6 are the very last words in the Old Testament spoken. We have 400 years of silence. God doesn't speak. And now when God speaks again, he speaks the last words spoken. And the tie is amazing. God the storyteller. 400 years of silence, God not saying anything. And now he speaks, and it's going to happen. And he speaks the very words that were last spoken and saying, today is the day. It's coming to pass. It's going to be fulfilled. Do you know the problem for us, though? We hear all these, all these details, these particulars of what is happening. God is in the details. He's working it all out. He's orchestrating it all. And he's, but he did all this, and he makes a promise, and he waits 400 years. The problem for us is 400 years. Because I could say that God is faithful in the details, and he manages the details of your life, but we don't like the fact that when he makes promises, he might wait 400 years. Because you know, 20 years to us is a long time. It can feel like when you're in the grind and you're in the middle of it, put yourself in the middle of a trial. 20 minutes is too long. So we don't like to wait. We don't like to, to wait on the Lord. We want things now. And any way I can get them now, the better. But when we're given a promise and we have to wait because God does what God does when he does it, then that often causes problems. And the problems it creates is that we often, in the, in the time of waiting, start doubting. And as we're going to find out next in this passage, even the most godly men can doubt God at times. If you look at verse 18 and through tw verse 20, it says, And Zechariah, here's his response. Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am old and my wife is advanced in the years. So basically he's saying, how can you prove this to me? You know, how can you, what could you do or what could you show me? How can I know for certain? How can I know for sure that this will actually come to pass? Because I don't know, Gabriel, if you're too familiar with my wife or myself or if you understand how old I am. I'm actually old enough to be an old grandpa. And now you're telling me something that really doesn't work, Gabriel. So it's tough. Can you show me something? Can you give me a sign, basically, he asks for? So he wanted a sign. Gabriel gives him a sign. You want a sign? He says, for I'm old and my wife has advanced in years. And then the angel Gabriel answered him and said, I am Gabriel. At this point, he hadn't mentioned his name. I'm Gabriel. Now, Zechariah, he knows his Bible. You're kidding me, Gabriel? Yeah, and he says, he says something about him. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. He, so he asked for a sign. He says, Zechariah, I'm Gabriel. And I stand in the presence of God, and he spoke these words, and he told me to come to you, speak them to you. As far as Gabriel's concerned, Zechariah 
you're nuts. You're crazy. What I've just spoken to you, do not understand. See, Gabriel has an advantage Zechariah doesn't. Gabriel stands in the presence of God. And he knows. Do you have any idea? When he speaks, it happens. Done. I don't care what it is. It doesn't matter how crazy. It doesn't, you know, don't think in terms of natural consequences. Don't think of how things naturally work because it doesn't matter with him. God speaks. And when he speaks, it happens. It is. It does. So he gives him his sign. And behold, you will be silent, in verse 20, and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Now, you know, I can understand both these people. I can understand Zechariah, can't you? I mean, you don't go tell people who are very advanced in years that they're going to have children. I mean... That doesn't make sense. At the same time, I can understand Gabriel. You don't ever doubt God has spoken. He stands in the presence of God, and so he knows this. But, but Zechariah wants proof of God's word, and he gets proof by not having any words. Don't believe God's word He takes away your word. Obviously, it wouldn't be easy to believe God, however. So, what's Zechariah to do now? Well, Zechariah now is in trouble because he can't communicate anything. He's completely mute. Nothing's coming out. But Zechariah, you know what's amazing in the context of this? He's just not an average guy. He's not a below-average guy. He's above-average guy. Because remember we looked at last week. What does it say about those these Zechariah and Elizabeth? They are godly people. What does it say? That they, that they are blameless before the Lord. They walk blamelessly before the Lord, keeping his commandments and, and statutes blamelessly. So here, here we have a man who is a godly man, and he doubts God. He doubts him. It's hard at times to believe God's promises, isn't it? Because he just doesn't give easy, easy promises. He just doesn't throw them out there and make them like low-shelf promises. He puts them out there, and they're high-shelf promises. Often, at times, it can seem irrational. Like when your loved one's dying of cancer or suffering under Alzheimer's, and yet ringing in your head is that God works all things out for good. Really? I can't figure this one out. In these situations, God tests us and and the reality of what we see with our eyes and the promise of God are crashing together and we don't understand it. We don't get it. And even the best of men, the strongest of men, find themselves doubting God's promises at times. But yet God, we know that he's faithful in the details. We know that he, he works all things out. But yet that is holding on to that and wrestling that 
through that in, the, in, the, in your valley, in the valley of shadow of death, at those moments it's tough. It's difficult. But as we wrestle with God, and even in our doubting God, and our, and our trying to hold on to the promises of God, in those moments, God is working and strengthening our faith in him. The very fact that we don't jettison the faith, the very fact that we, you know, we feel like we're hanging on by our fingertips or fingernails at times, is evidence of God's grace in our life. And that's necessary. It's needed. We have to wrestle with God and knowing that at times we're going we're gonna to doubt the promises of God. But God will use that to even grow and strengthen our faith. As long as even if you're hanging on by your fingernails, you still hang on and you look to God. You know what helps here, though, as well? It helps for us to realize something else that we find in this text. It helps us to realize that, you know, creation only does what it is told. And, this, and let me explain what I mean by that. It's very important as we look at verses 7, 21 sorry, through 25, where after this takes place, we see some significant events happening. And if, we have doubting, if we're doubting in our faith, often it's because we're looking with our eyes of flesh at this world and forgetting about who God is and how this world truly functions. Verse 21, and the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. Now, obviously, it takes about probably know, 10 minutes in there to do what they need to do and come out. He's delaying in there. He's taking a while. So he probably talked more with Gabriel than we even have recorded here. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. Now, that's kind of funny because he's unable to speak, but they realized he'd seen a vision. Now, obviously, he's flailing, right? Big eyes, and he's, he's mute. I mean, how you can describe you saw a vision? You know, maybe he was man and big and telling he can't, he can't talk, and you just won't believe what I, what I saw. You know, he's, he's not good at hand gestures at this point. He hasn't done it much, so he's probably flailing all over the people. And they're probably, I think he's seen a vision. I think he saw someone in there, and he, he can't speak, and they have to figure this out. What's going on? And he kept making signs to them and remained mute, it says. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. He's still mute. And after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me, to take away my reproach from among people. The first thing we should notice here is that people, like here I'm saying, there's miracles happening. And right out of the gate, the first thing we have to realize is that people don't become instantly mute for no reason. It doesn't happen. It can happen, we know, through birth defect or it can happen through an accident. But someone doesn't walk into a room and then walk out and become mute. Miracle number one, something happened that doesn't normally happen. Second, they could tell from his flailing around that there was another miracle that happened. Not only did he become mute miraculously, he's flailing around and giving them these signs and realizing he saw a vision. He saw something in there that isn't normal. He saw something there that goes outside of what we typically call reality. You could say he's crazy, but he saw something in there and they think that he saw a vision. And thirdly, he goes home to his wife, and again, elderly, grandma age, and she conceives and is pregnant. 
Now, these are all things that we typically call miracles, right? This is a miracle. These are things that shouldn't be happening but did happen. They don't normally happen. They're not ordinary. But they do, what they do is they tell us something about the world God has created. They help, to under, help us to undergird and help us to understand our faith and who it is we believe in. We don't have a world with fixed laws that everything must obey always and can never, ever, ever, ever change, no matter what. We have a world that is in covenant with God and obeys his word. Jeremiah 33:25 tells us this. Thus says the Lord, If I have not established my covenant with day and night and the fixed order of heaven and earth, then I will reject the offspring of Jacob and David, my servant, and will not choose one of his offspring to rule over the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In other words, if I don't have a covenant with creation, and if things don't work the way they work because I told them to, then I don't have a covenant with my people. That's what he's saying. Psalm 74, 16 through 17 says, Yours is the day, yours also the night. Talk referring to God. You have established the heavenly light and the sun. You have fixed all the boundaries of the earth. You have made summer and winter. And this is why when God whistles, creation jumps. You remember the plagues in Israel? The ten plagues? God... You know, when God shows up, he shows up through servants and messengers. And he whistles from heaven, and in come frogs and locusts and flies. Armies of them. He could take little insects like this. He says, I will take out man. Go get him. Little flies come in and can pretty much destroy him. He whistles and frogs show up. And can pretty much destroy him. God, at his whistle, at his command, at his word, can make creation jump. We just need to be thankful that he loves order. He loves to do things a particular kind of way. And so he covenants and he says, I want the sun to rise and I want it to set. And I want it to do that every day. And that's what I want so it does it. Because if he ever decides not to, it's over. (laughs) Over instantly or he could say no i don't want it to be over i want it to stop and i want it to be Er, stop and it'll be so often we get so used to operating a certain according to certain categories like hey when you're really old and you're and you don't produce any ovaries any longer you cannot get pregnant right who would say that's true that's true absolutely Well, it is as far as things normally go because God's covenanted and he says, that's the way I want things to work. But if he ever says, hold a second, I don't want it to work that way. I want you pregnant now. Pregnant, boom. The way he operates and functions, he's not bound to any of these things that he's ordained to come to pass. We need to be thankful that he loves order so much that we can make scientific discovery. We can make advancement. We can, di- we can discover and learn the ways of God and creation and from that benefit. And I'm thankful also that, you know what, you have to plead with him and often plead with him, and sometimes he still won't go outside of his ordinary means. 
Have you ever prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed for a miracle and God not answer us? I bet you have. He could, but he chooses not to for other reasons. He loves most of the time to order things according to the way he does them always. And every now and then, and sometimes surprisingly, he says, okay, this time. And in this particular case, he was setting the stage to show, to demonstrate that I am the Lord, your God, and it is me who's acting upon creation. God is not subject to the laws that he makes, the ways he covenants with creation. This is often why you get into any discussion or debate with somebody about creation, about science, and they immediately want to submit God to their data. They want proof, and what do they, they want proof according to a scientific definition. Do you think God will ever give them that? Never. Ever. He's not going to play that stupid game. He's not going to submit to that. The fact is, is that the only reason they can do what they do, and the only reason they can find out what they find out, is because God works a certain way. And he delights to. And he's totally okay with them. He's okay with them discovering his ways, creating a theory, defining it, calling it something, and everybody benefiting from it. And he doesn't get any glory. He doesn't get any credit. In the end, it will be revealed. But he is okay with his glory not being, not being exalted, not being praised. He's okay for the time being. One day it will be revealed. You realize we need to be thankful to God. Thankful that he loves order and that he does work a certain way. And we've got to be believing and trusting and knowing that creation jumps and skips and runs in everything in it according to his word. This allows you to trust him even in the face of impossibility. Even when all reason suggests otherwise. Just think of Daniel for a moment. If he were to trust in how the world normally works and not trust God, he would have probably freaked out and been almost unwilling to go into the lion's den. Because why? Well, what he would have known is that normally hungry lions rip you apart and would eat you without question. And in most cases, you dropped in there, you'd probably be devoured before you hit the bottom. But he, know, he trusts in the Lord his God. Who's, he's, he's knit these lions together. Their mouth moves because he's ordained it. Their heart beats because he's ordained it. Everything in them because he's made them and designed them. He's upholding them by his word at that very moment. That's the only way that, that Daniel can trust him and know that, hey, he might let me get devoured. It's possible. But even then, even in the midst of being devoured, he will be with me. His grace is sufficient. He, he will strengthen me. He will help me. I don't know how, but he'll help me. Even his buddies, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they said that very thing. I don't know if he will deliver me, but he has the ability to deliver us. That very statement says, we well, you know how the world works. I don't care how hot you turn the furnace up. I don't care how hot those flames are. If he wants to, that's nothing. And sure enough, that's what he did. It could have been the other way around. Let's say they were consumed. 
But even in the consumption, God would have been with them, and his grace would have been sufficient for them even in the midst of that. It's the only thing that allows us to walk by faith and to trust and to know that no matter what my mind and my reason is saying, my God is above it all. I don't know if you're afraid of heights or not. But if you are, can you imagine somebody taking you up and saying, top of the space needle, you deny Christ or I'm throwing you off. Well, the sheer sight of looking over there, like, whoa, terrifying. And then the thought of falling. I mean, you couldn't imagine falling knowing you're going to splat and die. Can you imagine just the thought of that? You're like, oh, no thanks. That's terrifying. And if you, in those moments, if you don't know how the world works, you're going to have a hard time. It's like, I'm, I'm really tempted right now to deny Christ. Really tempted. Because... I do not want to experience the terror of falling, and I do not want to experience the terror of what is it like to splat on the ground. That's freaky, isn't it? However, if we know our God that no matter what happens, he could actually cause me to sprout wings in the middle and fly away. He could... Prevent the whole thing from happening. He could, while I'm following, all, all of a sudden fill me with such strength that I could not even begin to describe it to you. He could allow me to hit the ground and splat and die. He could ordain, he's ordaining it all. He's upholding the people who are actually doing it to you. He sustains and ordains all things that are happening. But here's the promise. I am with you. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. I will work all things out for good. It'll work out. It's not your job. It's not your duty to figure it out. I won't let you. If you had it all figured out, you wouldn't have to trust me. So I'm not going to let you figure it out. Just know this, that I am Lord of all, even of the situation. I ordain, I uphold all things <clears throat> Sorry, by my power. Everything. So you're falling. You're falling in my hands, he says. No matter what, I'm with you. So creation and order, we have to understand, it's only happening this way because God has told it to happen. Therefore, you can trust him fully no matter the impossible, the weirdness, the strangeness of the situation that he puts you in, no matter what. He's with you, and he'll work it out for your good. So what are we to understand from all this? As we look at this particular text, we see that God is faithful in the details to fulfill his word and promise. This is what we see at the beginning. We see that no matter how good you are, you're going to have times and moments of doubting. You will doubt the promises of God. But even through that, God works. And we see that God works throughout creation, ordaining all that comes to pass, determining all that happens, and miracles for him, the ordinary for him, or the extraordinary, is nothing for him. It's easy. Creation does his bidding. Creation obeys him. And because of this, because of who he is, because of who we are and how weak we are, because of the world in which we live, we can trust him. That's the conclusion of the matter. 
We can hold fast to his promises in the face of the most difficult and brutal circumstances. The Lord your God is with you. He'll never leave you nor forsake you. He's in charge of all things. He controls creation so you don't have to worry about it. And you'll have times where you worry about it. You'll have times where you doubt it. And you'll have times when you deeply struggle with it. But remember, he's faithful in details. He's Lord over all that comes to pass. Creation does his bidding. And even in your doubting, he is faithful to show up and help you. Amen. Father, we're thankful and we're grateful that you are the Lord our God, the one who ordains all that comes to pass. You're the one who's sovereign and creation obeys your word. We're so thankful that you are faithful in the details of life and orchestrate the details. We're so thankful that we are your children, even when we doubt. You don't destroy us. You do things for us to help us learn and to grow. We might be strengthened in our faith. Father, we are so thankful for this and thankful for your grace. Be merciful, we ask in Christ. Amen.